everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and uh, happy Memorial Day out there to everybody out in the U.S. Hoping you have a good long weekend. And we have an interview show for you today. Uh, we had a little bit of a dry spell there as we try to get some scheduling done, but not only do we have an interview, we've got a two-part interview, and not only do I have that queued up, I've actually got another interview in the wings as well. So we've got, we've got lots of great stuff coming your way. Uh, of course, I'll, I'll sprinkle in some news shows there too, because there's plenty of stuff going on. So we make sure you keep you up to date and uh, aware of the things you need to be aware of. Uh, but today we're going to be talking with David Reese uh, from the well-known and much-respected antivirus software maker Malwarebytes. He's a writer for them now for their blog. And uh, we're going to be talking about a privacy poll, a massive uh, privacy poll that they did of, I think, 4,000 people, 66 countries. Uh, one of his colleagues uh, uh, did the poll, and he has written he recently written some articles about some of the results and the key takeaways from that. Uh, and I think you'll find it surprising. Uh, I certainly did. There's some results I wasn't expecting to see. And uh, we'll get into that here in just a minute, since we do have a two-parter interview here. Uh, and it'll be at least three weeks then until we get some news. I did want to call out a specific data breach. Uh, with something like 900 million records of people having to do with mortgages, I believe, from First American Financial Corp. Now, we don't know for sure if these records have actually been stolen. They were certainly available and ready to be taken, but we don't know yet how, if any of these were actually exfiltrated, as we say in the business. Uh, nevertheless, I just wanted to bring it up to, to to make you aware of it and let you know that if you haven't already frozen your credit, now might be a fun time to go do that. A little reminder that uh, these kind of things can help in this situation, at least prevent you know bad actors from getting that kind of information and opening new credit in your name. Uh, in other words, basically identity theft. So uh, anyway, if you haven't frozen your credit yet, uh, you might want to look into that. I've got an article on my website you can check out, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can uh, search for credit freeze and you'll find the information there. Also, Clark Howard has got a good article on this as well. Uh, Krebs on security. Brian Krebs has got another article. You can search for those online as well. Uh, I think I actually linked to the Clark Howard one from mine. So if you want to yeah, kill two birds with one stone, you can just go there and get both. So I mentioned we've got another interview coming up. I'll be talking with Eva Galprin from EFF, uh, somebody from EFF I've not yet spoken with. And uh, she is an expert on stalkerware, uh, sometimes called spouseware and other types of spyware. And we're going to be talking about really how prevalent this is and how easy it is, unfortunately, uh, for someone to spy on somebody else, in particular uh, one spouse on another or a girlfriend, boyfriend situation where someone's paranoid. Uh, and it has some really creepy implications. So we're going to be talking about that in a few weeks. So stay tuned for that. But now let's go to David Reese from Malwarebytes and let's hear about this massive privacy poll that they just did and some of the surprising results. David Reese is a pro-privacy, pro-security writer for Malwarebytes Labs, where he covers online privacy, legislation, and the interplay between technology and the law. Welcome back to the show, David. Thank you for having me again, Kerry. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yep, and uh, we've got some interesting stuff to talk about today. You, or actually your company, Malwarebytes, and one of your colleagues there recently performed a month-long study uh, of over 4,000 people from 66 countries uh, about privacy. Uh, so we're really interested to hear what you found out about that. Um, what was the purpose of the survey, and what was it you were really hoping to learn? Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, we were trying to actually just drill down and understand how the recent news that you see day after day about data breach after data breach or data misuse after data misuse. Mm -hmm. uh, and we tried to try and find uh, understand if um, 
if those constant headlines really had an impact on the average user. You know, there's um, there's news we can read every single day about, uh, again, data misuse uh, reaching legitimately international scale. Uh, yeah. Of course, the Cambridge Analytica scandal mm-hmm. uh, implicating Facebook uh, was, the, again, an international disinformation campaign to sway yeah. the 2016 U.S. presidential election. It's like, okay, we... We know the we know the big parts of this, but everyday user, you know, the person who lives in California, the person who lives in uh, in Texas, who lives in D.C., the person who lives in Lisbon and Spain, uh, you know, is it affecting them, and or are they starting to see, you know, is it is it starting to just become too much noise? And so we wanted to find out uh, has have they noticed, you know, has the average person noticed across the world, and two, um, are they doing anything about it? You know, uh, or have they reached again this sort of a uh, privacy nihilism? So, how did you put the word out of this? How did you how did you determine who you were going to select for this? How did you find the people to take this survey? Yeah, so from my understanding, uh, this uh, this was absolutely one hundred percent put together by my colleague. Her name is Jovi Umawing, and she uh, basically tried to survey everyone. I, I don't know the exact methodology. But it sounds like it was 100%. Let's try and get as many people as possible from as many representative countries because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of online privacy here in the United States is obviously different from that in the European Union's many member states. And so we're trying to get a sampling from every continent that we can. And I honestly, I don't know if you're planning to do this, but it'd be really nice if you could make this like an annual thing. I don't know what this thing cost, but <laughs> you know, to, see, to kind of see the trends. Because my guess is if you had taken this same survey, you know, for the last three years or four years in a row, there would be probably a market change. I mean, with things like Cambridge Analytica and things that are popping up, I'd I'd love to see how the trends go. Because my, my feeling is that people are becoming finally uh, more, you know, interested in privacy. Um, so let's get into this. Uh, what were your, like, just at a high level, what were the big high level takeaways that, uh, from this study? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Something we were extremely pleased to find out is we can actually gather some numbers and point to uh, substantively that people from literally every age group care about online privacy. They Mm. they actually just do, uh, and quite deeply. So every age group, we asked individuals from uh, Generation Z, or iGen sometimes referred to, uh, from Millennials, from Generation X, from Baby Boomers, uh, respondents in every single category, uh, the majority of the respondents in each single category, uh, said they both care about online privacy and that they actually take steps Mm. to protect their online privacy. Uh, That was a a huge takeaway for us. Um, And we were seeing percentages uh, all in the 90 and above percent you know, um, this was a this was a huge share of almost everyone. Wow! So my next question was going to be what surprised what surprised you the most, and it sounds like that may be it. Were there any other big surprises from the survey? There were some pretty big surprises, from my understanding. Uh, a lot of this survey was to finally find out if uh, millennials do care about online privacy. Uh, as a millennial, uh, I can't tell you how many articles I've read that say that my generation, uh, because we were attending college and high school when Facebook mm. or other social media platforms really took off. Uh, that because we were raised in that environment that we really don't have a concern for privacy, that we're used to trading things, um, you know, trading who we are, our identities, and putting it online just for convenient experiences or to tag photos or do things like that. And, you know, do we do we even have the same idea of privacy? And right. uh, the notion that millennials, millennials do not care about privacy proved to be flatly untrue. Um, Millennials do care about privacy. Uh, overwhelming majority, 93% of the respondents who were in that age group admitted to caring about their online privacy. Wow. Yeah. 
And then, and yet, it, okay, I mean, I, in my class that I teach, I, I was just talking about this, actually, and I always quote, like, there's three famous tech executive quotes that I always whip out, and, you know, I forget who said which, but you know, one of them is, like, privacy dead, get over it. One of them, <laughs> you know, and uh, one of them, I think Google, the uh, Schmidt at the time said, well, you know, if you're doing something that you're afraid should be, you know, someone else might see, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. You know, a lot of these really mm-hmm. anti-privacy quotes from tech giants. Right. Um but it, it really does seem, and that's why I'm shocked too, that, that so many people said they were concerned about these things. It, it really feels like, so what, what, what accounts for the fact that we don't, haven't done anything about this? Is it, do people feel like there's nothing they could do? And yet you did find that people were doing things. So mm-hmm. uh, how, what is it, where do we get this impression that people don't seem to care about privacy? Or has this been a recent development where all of a sudden they do and they didn't in years prior? Yeah. So this, uh, this idea that we have where people don't care about privacy, it's, um, it's also true. Uh, strangely enough, it's it's crazy that we can have these two uh, feelings that are very strong and also have been proven to be uh, true at the exact same time, yet they conflict directly <laughs> with one another. And something that we saw in our privacy report uh, is, you know, we looked at other research. We looked at, you know, h- how do we grapple with the idea that we say we care about privacy, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we we can't we can't prove that we do sometimes, and <laughs> right. there are definitely studies out there that uh, my uh, my colleague found that that show that uh, people are willing to give up information about themselves for something as small as the price of a slice of pizza, yeah, uh, yeah. or something as small as the actual slice of pizza, right? <laughs> um, sign up for this app, give them your email, give them your X, Y, and Z, and you get a free slice. And it's this um. It's this unfortunate trade-off, this unfortunate bargain that people are actually willing to engage in. But it is also interesting that when you step away from that bargain, when you tell them maybe that they don't have to engage in that bargain, they actually do care. Like, mm. it's it's just that. Um, and unfortunately, those two realities exist at the exact same time. Interesting. So you said that you, you were surprised that millennials did care, and a lot of us probably would agree that that was a surprise. But were there any interesting demographic trends, either or, or cultural trends? Did you did you notice any interesting uh, statistics that might differ between countries or between age groups? Yeah. So for age groups, we did find that um, Generation Z actually did have the lowest percentage of respondents that cared about online privacy. Uh, I know I said a few minutes earlier that we were all looking at 90% and above. Uh, to correct that, it was uh, Generation Z was 83% cared about online privacy. Uh, that was the lowest one. Um, to give a quick rundown, Millennials was 93%. Generation X was 97 Baby Boomers, 97 as well. Um, mm. Something we saw that was a little interesting when I first saw it was that we also asked questions about whether respondents were aware of their online privacy in their home environment versus their work environment. Mm. Uh, Are they caring more about it or are they being Mm -hmm. told to care more about it? And baby boomers uh, actually responded the most strongly with being aware of online privacy in work. Um, I don't 100% know why that is. I have some thoughts about it. And one of them is that I actually used to be a legal affairs reporter, and when you're a legal affairs reporter, a lot of the people you're speaking to are lawyers who are 60 and up. <laughs> and the complaints I heard, I mean, almost almost weekly, you know, on on stories that weren't related to this at all, were individuals who were complaining about the Wi-Fi password changing every single day. <laughs> uh, individuals complaining that they couldn't use their personal iPad to access the law firm's database of evidence because mm. their personal iPad was not approved of it. Right. And just, you know, these kind of um, 
cybersecurity measures which are safe and good, but uh, are running into walls into, you know, what I think a lot of these attorneys at an earlier point in their career, it used to be a much more seamless environment. Right. The inconvenience of these security procedures is being felt. Right. Um, so I, uh, I teach a continuing education course for retirees at Duke and, uh, I do a survey before each one of those. And one of the questions I ask is what, you know, what kind of things you're most concerned about. And one mm -hmm. of them is I talk about mass surveillance or, or maybe co-opting your, or, or your data or, or uh, collecting data about you. And I break mm -hmm. it down versus corporate versus government. And invariably every time. <laughs> they say that they care much more about corporate than government. Like government is always the lowest. And I never, ah. and I never understood that. Do you see any kind of trends like that? I don't know if you ask those kind of distinguishing questions. But. We, um, we did not ask that, uh, that question. And I think it's a fantastic question. And I think it's, um, if we did something like this, you know, again, a year from now, which I think would be good. So we could start building that database, start building trends to actually spot out. Uh, that would be a fantastic question. Um, my assumption, my my immediate assumption here, and this is from having worked uh, at Electronic Frontier Foundation for a little bit, which worked a lot on government surveillance. That's what I used to do. Mm -hmm. um, I think the my assumption here would be that corporate surveillance right now is just simply in the news a lot more. Mm. And government surveillance is something that has been rather clandestine and has been given a lot of titles that a lot of the public simply doesn't even know and has mm. been argued before... Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which um, is secretive right. by its design. And so I think because simply, pe simply because people know more, they read more about corporate surveillance, about the, uh, about the corporate surveillance regime and uh, surveillance capitalism is, an e is even mm -hmm. a word we hear a lot more and more. I'm assuming that's where uh, the concern comes from. But that, again, is just me sort of kind of just guessing here, shooting in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. I was the, for me, the, the, one of my initial thoughts was, you know, I wonder if it's a generational thing in terms of trusting the government and thinking mm -hmm. that the government does have a role in, <laughs> you know, intelligence agencies do have some sort of a, more of a right to kind of poke into your stuff than mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't know. It's pure, pure assumption. Right. So yeah, that'd be awesome if you could add that. <laughs> if you do that <laughs> I'd love to understand that. Um, Okay, so um, in your article that kind of summarizes the report results, uh, you kind of made the point that we do currently have like a net, metaphorical net of sector-specific regulations, complete with gaping holes. Um, <laughs> so kind of walk through what, what legal protections actually do we currently have. There are some. Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Um, so there are some. That is a good way to uh, <laughs> summarize it. Um, and there are laws that are, like you said, sector-specific. So we're looking at laws that protect, for example, healthcare information that is collected by healthcare providers. Uh, we have another law that protects information belonging to children under 13. Uh, it protects that information when that information is collected by companies that knowingly like market or target their mm -hmm. services to kids. So that's a lot of jargon to say, essentially, if you are a company and you absolutely make a children's product, like 100% it is a children's product, mm -hmm. and you're likely collecting children's information online, you have to abide by this by this certain law. The Children's Online, I believe it's Online Privacy and Protection Act. Yeah, um, Papa, yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, we have another law protecting video rental records, actually. Really? And we have, uh, yeah, so this is kind of interesting. We have a law prevent, uh, protecting video rental records because I believe it is a, a Supreme Court nominee uh, huh. a while ago, decades ago, had their 
uh, video rental records <laughs> leaked to a newspaper. And interesting. That was considered such a breach of privacy that uh, Congress kicked it into high gear and like, we're going to make a law to stop this. Um, and huh. that's really been the history of data protection laws in the United States is um, sometimes someone trips up or sometimes something happens that people are not happy with. And so our lawmakers write a law targeting that exact crisis, but nothing more. Um, huh. And so that's why today we, we do not, uh, the United States does not have a comprehensive uh, federal data privacy law. And so what that means is a lot of the things that people are upset about uh, actually are not strictly illegal. And mm -hmm. so uh, when a flashlight app you know, it actually takes your contact information. <laughs> um, too bad. You know, that's that's not illegal um, right. for the most part. If uh, there was a story a while ago about um, a period and menstrual tracking app where they actually shared information with Facebook. Um, yeah, again, I read that. It was, it was sort of like a so what kind of thing in wow. terms of asserting uh, legal rights. You know, in terms of like, hey, I want to go to court for this. Uh, there isn't there isn't a catch all law under which U.S. persons can say, hey, this is this was illegal, and so I am going to file a lawsuit, and I'm going to, you know, try and try and assert my rights. Um, we just we just don't have that right now. So when I was speaking to a lot of lawyers about this area, about consumer data privacy, everyone said, hey, it's a it's buyer beware. <laughs> right. All right. So I, I got a few follow-up questions on some of those. So the the kids law. So is that why Facebook and all these other social media companies, every time you join, you've got to you've got to somehow you got to give me a birthday and you've got to be more than thirteen years old. Is that why that comes in because they don't want to be subject to that? Uh, it uh, very well could be. Uh, I have I can't like verify it. I'm not one hundred percent, but um, it very well one hundred percent could be um, <laughs> because yes, uh, I know. Specifically, like you're not allowed to have a Facebook account if you're under a certain age. If that age is under 13, that would line up with yeah. the theory that, hey, they don't want to be subject to that law. And the, and the reason I know this is because I've got two daughters who are teenagers. Uh, mm. They're not mm -hmm. quite old teenagers, but at the time they went through this phase where, you know, mm -hmm. they wanted to start having these Instagram accounts or Facebook accounts right. or, or whatever. And right. and the and I know I looked very closely. Then the terms of service said that it was 13 or above. So I, I that must not, not be a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the video rental history thing. So that's really interesting. So, I mean, you say literally video rental. So does that, what about, you know, like is, is the record of things that I watch on Netflix or is that subject to the same law or is that, is there somehow like VHS tapes only, or, you know, or DVDs only? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I believe the law actually has been updated to include things like Netflix records. Okay. Um, I am not, uh, again, I'm not completely certain on that, but, uh, I believe it has been. So one more thing related to that, and this was kind of the classic privacy thing or things that at least I've, I've read about in the past, and that is your library rental history, like uh, going to the library, figure out what materials someone has checked out in the past. Is, yeah. is that covered by anything? Or is it just like a moral standing where the, because where the, I've heard of, of librarians saying, no, I'm not going to give you that info, but did, is that just because it's a, a policy or, or is it actually a le they have legal footing there? So if there is a specific law that does not allow for library records to be disclosed, I am not aware of it. Mm. However, there, and this is going into the weeds very quickly, because <laughs> we got we to gotta get right out of it, because I could talk for days about this. Mm. Um, there, after the September 11th attacks, uh, the uh, Patriot Act, which was passed, which mm -hmm. was uh, allowed for uh, far 
far broader surveillance mm. uh, by our intelligence agencies. Uh, it's it was often referred to a little bit as the Library Provisions Act um, mm. because the reading of the language in the law uh, basically allowed for an encompassing of the government could get library records and. It was interesting that that was that was the thing that stuck with people. Yeah. Like that was more like this is the bridge too far. We're gonna call it like the Library Provisions Act because, my God, can you believe it includes your library records? And hmm. part of me is like, yes, uh, <laughs> we should be shocked about that. That's yeah, that's yeah. absurd. But another part of me is kind of impressed that like that was the thing that really stuck yeah. on with me. So huh. in terms of um in terms of an actual law protecting consumers um. I am not aware of that law, but in terms of uh, has it been allowed in the past for the intelligence agencies to collect library records? It has. <laughs> wow. And maybe that's where I remember it from. And it's it's kind of interesting to think about because that would have been post 9-11. That would have been 2002, 2003 era. Yep. And I wonder if we've really, you know, in the last 15 years have just come that far. Because, I mean, if you think about all the things that are collected about us today, and maybe the difference is it's corporate, not government. Maybe the fact yeah. that Google knows or, and Netflix knows and Amazon knows yeah. all these things about me, but it's not the government. Maybe that, maybe that somehow makes a difference to people mm-hmm. per our earlier conversation about that. Yeah. Uh, so, um, okay. So moving on, you did say that there were some blanket protections and they kind of fall under this truth and advertising thing um so is <laughs> yeah. this actually useful in practice i mean as far as truth and advertising because we always get these terms of service and the big long things some of these things i've seen quotes are some of these social media things yeah. are longer than Macbeth, right <laughs> so <laughs> you know it would it's not really feasible to actually read them and if you did you probably wouldn't understand what you were giving away so we mm-hmm. kind of agree to these things so how does the mm-hmm. truth and advertising come into play and how does that actually help yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are a series of laws, and um, most states have them. Uh, it might honestly be all 50 states, uh, where y- as a company, companies are not allowed to engage in what's uh, called like unfair or deceptive business practices. And that's, you know, just kind of language that means companies can't say they're going to do X and then actually not do it. So a company can't say, we're going to store all of your passwords, uh, uh, we're going to encrypt all your passwords and store them that way and then actually have a huge repository of plain text passwords. Mm. Uh, if, if a company has said it's going to do this thing and then they don't, um, that is illegal. Uh, that is, and that falls under this, uh, this, like you said, this sort of truth in advertising, this uh, unfair, deceptive business practices. Uh, the problem with these laws is uh, that asserting your digital privacy rights under them is extraordinarily difficult uh, mm. because if you want to go to court, uh, court is a venue where you can prove that you have been harmed by mm. a certain act. Uh, and if you want to prove that you've been harmed by a business that, that lie to you, often the way to do that is to show that you lost some money. Mm-hmm. And showing that you lost money because of something like, let's say, a data breach is extraordinarily difficult to prove because there are so many variables in a data breach. And often there'll come a point where you might be able to say, okay, like, yes, I did lose money because there was a data breach, and then uh, let's say my credit score got impacted somehow, and then I had to spend money to pump it back up. I'm not really certain here. But also at the end of the day, someone can point the finger and say, well, like, well no, it's not the company's fault. It's the criminal's fault <laughs> for doing that. Right. And so having a, proving a, a nexus you know, between right. data breach and I personally lost money is extraordinarily difficult to do. And also from that perspective, you know, one of the one of the things that our system has that can kind of keep these deep pocketed companies in check is the is the threat of a class action lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
does that pl come into play too? Is it also, if there was a data breach, like let's look at Equifax, right? The, this massive data breach. Um, mm. did, were there any actually lawsuits that came out of that, either personal or class action? In it, and was, I don't think there were. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but it's part of the problem because it, because there really just was no standing. There was no, the, either individuals couldn't directly claim financial loss or, and there was no class to be had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the problem that you mentioned here, like with the class action where a lot of folks bandy together and they sue a company over, uh, allegedly similar harm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the problem here with something like, again, like a data breach is that proving that, harm is similar, like having to go through that exercise is actually very difficult for a data breach in the way that it's not hard for, a lawyer explains to me, like an environmental lawsuit, um, where if you have an envir environmental lawsuit and let's say a lake has been polluted by a company, um, there are actually ways to say, okay, this lake was polluted X amount and this lake uh, leads to a water servicing plant and that water servicing plant feeds Y number of individuals and they've been drinking Z amount of water mm. over so many years. And you can just try and do some of the math and say, okay, this actually would lead to this much harm. Uh, with a data breach, it's not the same. Like it's, it just isn't. And proving that everyone has the exact same kind of treatment um, is again, extraordinarily difficult to do. Because not every not every person suffers from a data breach in the same exact way, right. even when cyber criminals are out there trying to do the exact same thing. Well, I would think attribution would be a problem too, right? And it probably yep. that comes into environmental <laughs> things as well. But if there's five data breaches in the last month and your identity is stolen, how do you prove which right. one of those was at fault? <laughs> yep, that's yeah, that's a hundred percent true. Uh, and there are more data breaches that we read about every single day. And like you said, um, being able to to really draw that line between okay, my identity was stolen and it was this exact data breach. Mm. Um, it's, it's uh, again, I just keep coming back to this. It is extraordinarily difficult because we just don't, we just don't have that kind of, um, the average person doesn't have that kind of proof. Right. So th these laws that we do have, these, this, this patchwork quilt of laws that we they do have, including this truth and advertising stuff, how, how are these laws actually enforced and who is in charge of enforcing them? Yeah, yeah. So for the uh, for the unfair and deceptive business practices uh, laws, those are often enforced by state attorney generals, and we've actually seen them used before, um, pretty recently. Uh, it happened a couple of years ago with Uber. Uh, they actually they actually faced a lawsuit where uh, all fifty one state attorneys general in the United States. So that's the fifty states plus Washington D.C.'s mm. state attorney general. All 51 sued Uber because of their alleged cover-up of a data breach that had happened two years earlier. Uh, Uber settled that lawsuit. They paid $148 million for that. Mm. Uh, the FTC, like you said, Federal Trade Commission, can also uh, investigate large sort of countrywide data misuse, and they're doing that right now, as we see with Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, there are essentially a lot of government officials and uh, state and city-level attorneys who can file lawsuits on behalf of the public uh, to enforce these laws. Now, you mentioned Facebook. And now, they they recently, I think it was, this came up because it was in their quarterly conference call <laughs> yeah. where they basically said, we, you know, we we anticipate perhaps paying a fine to the FTC of anywhere from 3 to $5 billion, yeah. uh, I think, to settle the Cambridge Analytica thing. What, what ha What's going on with that? Is that is that likely to happen? So I have read the exact same things you have where the... <laughs> 
Facebook, yeah, they have decided to budget away uh, about three to five billion dollars because they are assuming that they will be hit with a regulatory fine from the FTC in that number, uh, which is uh, an astronomical amount. Uh, we really want to mm. put it put it down that um, if that fine comes down, it would be the largest fine uh, that the FTC has issued. As far as how far along, like the FTC is in its investigation, and as far as like have they completed it? Mm-hmm. Are they still doing it? Are they prepping the uh, regular like the regulatory fine itself? I don't know. Uh, I don't think any of us know. Uh, so we just kind of have to wait and see. Well, the other thing too, and this this my memory seems to serve me that a lot of times in these government lawsuits where there's these these massive eye you know jaw dropping settlement amounts that they and you know some of these things in the past may have been for environmental things uh, mm-hmm. or, or whatever you you hear or tobacco industry you know are these these big numbers, but when it comes down to it after much negotiation by the time it's all settled, a lot of these the, the they actually don't pay usually anywhere near that amount. Um, and I don't, maybe this is just jaded me remembering things that way or remembering, you know, Aaron Brockovich too much. I don't know, but, um, anyway, so yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what that is. And hopefully we'll follow up on that and see actually what the real out of pocket is for them. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So what percentage of your respondents, but going back to the survey, um, mm-hmm. you said that a lot of them were taking personal steps to protect their privacy. And I think you sound like a lot of them were doing it. So what yeah. what kind of things are they doing? Uh, what did they did you get into the details of what kind of thing what steps they were taking? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we absolutely asked them like, hey, you know, if you are taking steps, and uh, really quickly here, ninety seven percent of all of our respondents said that they do take actual steps in protecting their online That's data, uh, which is great. Yeah, yeah. it's huge. Um, and there were a couple of options that we offered, uh, and the highest ranking ones were things like as simple as refraining from sharing sensitive personal data on social media. It's just mm-hmm. choosing choosing not to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, We're just not going to do it, particularly on social media. Um, there was also using security software, so using antivirus, using uh, malware protection, mm-hmm. uh, you know, using malware bytes, you know, um, mm-hmm. using those. That was a ninety-three percent of respondents who, again, who said that they engaged in these activities, uh, said they use security software. A huge one, a big one here, um, was running software updates regularly. Mm, um, yeah. That was at ninety percent, and when I say huge, I mean an important one. That is extraordinarily important um, that you just update your software and then another one that this surprised me uh and maybe it's just i it's because of behavior it's a behavior i had not really engaged in mm-hmm. but um 86 percent of respondents said uh that they verify that the websites they're visiting uh are secure before they make a purchase mm-hmm. so they're basically looking to see if it's https uh, right. in the, um and i was uh, happy to hear that <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, and, and that's actually something I covered in the class too. Because you know, I, I, what a lot of people it used to be, uh, actually prior to the Let's Encrypt campaign from Google and others, which made getting these certificates yeah. free, um, they used to cost money to get these things. So it used to be a lot of mm-hmm. times that you look at that and you could kind of infer that if someone spent the money and took the time to enable HTTPS and get that nice little green lock, that they were legit. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but now that's not true anymore. Anybody, literally anybody, can go out and get a dozen of these things today and all that. So what I have to drill home a lot of times to the, to the, to the folks in the class is that all mm-hmm. that means is that the communications between you and that other end, whoever they may be, 
is encrypted. It doesn't really doesn't say anything right. about you know how good the the whoever it is you're talking to. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's still good to know. It's still good to know <laughs> that people have the, the the sense to to at least look for that. <laughs> so I assume that in your thing, you probably asked all the things. You know, you asked about are you doing the things that you probably would recommend that people do. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, is there anything else besides what we've already mentioned that you that you might want to just throw out there uh, in terms of you know processes, tools, uh, habits um, that, that that we should look at doing? I think it's just another opportunity to hammer on this. We already said it, but updating your software. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to work, uh, like I said, at, at EFF, uh, and I worked on the same team as the organization's associate director of research, uh, Jenny Gebhardt, and yep. she hammers this point really elegantly. Uh, she compares it, honestly, to like basic daily hygiene. Uh, mm. She says, brush your teeth, eat your vegetables, update your <laughs> software. Like that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's extraordinarily important because... Um, the vulnerabilities that cybersecurity researchers are routinely discovering uh, because it's it's their jobs and, and they're interested in keeping systems and infrastructure secure, uh, those vulnerabilities are fixed by company-issued uh, updates. Yeah. And when you don't update your software, you leave yourself open to vulnerabilities, not just that, you know, have been discovered, but are also being written about. They're being reported. Uh, you know, Malwarebytes writes a blog about something. It's because... We know about it, and once we know about it, more people know about it, and yeah. that includes threat actors. So, right. you know, we can try our best to stop viruses from, you know, implanting themselves on a machine, but there are also some core systemic vulnerabilities uh, in operating systems that can be taken advantage of by by threat actors. Yeah, and that's a and that actually that last point's a great point because um, it's gotten it's really gotten to a, a point where this routine where it's. It's, mm-hmm. If if the bad guys didn't know about these things already, somebody comes out and said, "Hey, there was a really bad thing that we that we have a fix for right now. Go get it." And mm-hmm. so that tips all of them off everywhere <laughs> that, "Oh, <laughs> hey, there's something going on here." And if you don't get on that, they will, right? Right. Um, the other thing, I, personally, that I've been kind of recommending lately, along those same lines, is kind of the the converse of that, and that is delete any software you no longer use, um, mm-hmm. uh, apps uh, either on the computer or on your phone, because it's yeah. it, it's just another potential chink in your armor and uh, there's no reason you know if you're not using it get rid of it right okay um now you know in our daily lives we basically leave a trail of digital exhaust footprints breadcrumbs wherever <laughs> you, want, you know whatever metaphor you want to use everywhere everywhere we go so yeah. is it you know is it really possible i mean to, to prevent this or even meaningfully curb it i mean is in the world we live in today with all the things that are going on it, you know i know we can take some steps and they're worth taking but mm-hmm. can is it is it possible to, to not leave a trace and on that little teaser note we will end part one of our interview with david reese tune in again next week same bad time same bat channel uh for the part two of my interview with david reese on their polling results and is it possible to really protect yourself and hide your digital footprints as you go around the web these days it's a it's a big question it's a thorny issue Uh, And we'll pick up from there next week when we resume part two of our interview. In the meantime, if you're looking for some fun summer reading now that the summer has officially kicked off here in the United States, you might pick up Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Uh, You can get it from Parts of Noble, Amazon, most of the major online retailers. And of course, you can get it directly from my publisher, A-Press, as well. It's not exactly a gripping thriller, but it is chock full of uh, really straightforward and hopefully simple advice on how to protect yourself. Some really basic stuff. You know, I kind of always, I like my analogies. So for me, it's like, you know, wearing seat belts, installing smoke detectors, brushing your teeth, you know, these kind of basic daily hygiene and 
security and safety things we've all gotten used to in the real world that we just don't really have quite the same instinctual feel for in the digital world. So so if you haven't already checked it out, uh, maybe this summer would be a good time to pick that up and take some time to follow some of these tips and make yourself more secure and guard your privacy around the web. Uh, if not for you, maybe for your family and friends as well. So that'll do it for this week. Tune in again next week. We'll have part two of our interview with David Reese. And in the meantime, everybody out there, stay safe. Have a fun rest of your Memorial Day weekend. And don't get caught with your garbage time.